Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back uh, to the podcast and our probably our, our most ambitious episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is our intentions. The, to get all the way through First and Second Kings today, which means summaries. Yes, <laughs> we're not going to try to cover every one of the kings today. Uh, we'll spend some time on Solomon. Uh, we know a lot more about him, but uh, we're going to be looking today at Solomon's reign, uh, which wraps up the United Kingdom. We've talked about Saul in an episode, David in an episode, and now we will talk a little bit about Solomon. We don't know quite as much about him as the first two. And then we will um, try to sum up the divided kingdom of Israel, which is one of the more uh, overwhelming parts of the Old Testament to study, just because there are so many kings, uh, about 20 kings in the north and in the south, give or take. And um, it's a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of uh, events. Though, as we go through, we'll kind of highlight uh, some of the ones that the text gives more time to, because um, like in the northern kingdom, there's a bunch of kings, but it'll park on Ahab for like a bunch of chapters. Yes. <laughs> um, he gets like six chapters, and some guys get a paragraph. So it's not evenly covering all of the kings right? like we would expect. And to give you an idea of how much text we're looking to cover today, um, Stephen looked it up on a app he uses when he listens to the Bible read, and this section of scripture we're looking at today was what, four hours some odd, like four hours some odd minutes, fifteen minutes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that, <laughs> just so, to read it. Yeah, so, so it, it is a it is a good chunk of the Old Testament, and uh, it is a good chunk of of history in terms of years past as mm-hmm. well. But it is a really vital part of Israel's history that we need to talk about because it will lay the stage for a lot of the minor and major prophets that we read about in the rest of the Old Testament. They were all they all those prophets will kind of like sprinkle in uh, in between and during the stories that we're going to read and talk about today. Yeah, a lot of the rest of the Old Testament uh, chronologically fits into this section of Scripture. So we'll talk about some of that on future episodes, Lord willing. But as we uh, kind of open up here, we're picking up with First Kings. And First uh, and Second Kings, again, were originally one scroll from what we understand that kind of breaks in the middle of a story again. But um, they're telling the stories of Solomon and the divided kingdom. And this is going to parallel um, the book of Second Chronicles. We'll have some things to say a little bit later about Kings and Chronicles and some of the differences there. Because yeah. um, this can, again, get overwhelming. Because if you're reading straight through your Bible, you read First and Second Kings. And then you read First and Second Chronicles in our English Bibles. And you're like, wow, this is a lot of stuff. And then you get it over again. Yeah. So it's uh, a lot to take in. So 2 Kings starts off right where 2 Samuel um, left off. Uh, but, Stephen, you got something no, else for, there? First Kings. Oh, sorry. I don't know what I said. But for, first Kings ends where 2 Samuel left off, and it's with David in his old age. And there is a power play that happens in the very uh, last days of David, which is so sad that that happens, but that is so true in, in monarchies where people are fighting for the crown and 
in specific, it's going to be a son of David's name, Adonijah, that's going to try and make a move to become the next king of Israel. The power transitions are never peaceful no. in these things. I mean, there's a lot of politics going on. There's a lot of violence. And we're going to see that play out throughout these books. And and the Bible is not you know, pulling any punches here. It, it tells the story like it happened with all of the background craziness going on. I mean, these are humans being humans, and it's not pretty. But the Bible records it as it happened. And so Adonijah gets in a position to become the next king as David is in his old age. And Bathsheba will go to David and explain to him what's going on and say, we know that it's your will for Solomon to become the next king. So we need to make this thing happen before Adonijah you know, wins the hearts of the people and takes over the entire kingdom of Israel. And so David uh, takes it upon himself, as it was prophesied that would happen, that this descendant of his Solomon is going to be the next king. And so David puts out this decree that states as such that Solomon will become the next king. And they get it done before Adonijah kind of has this big uprising as the king. So it's done just in the nick of time to avoid what could have been a civil war. Yeah, it would have been part three, right? Because we talked about, you know, Absalom's rebellion, then Sheba's rebellion, and now what would have been Adonijah's rebellion is thankfully nipped in the bud. Yes. And so Solomon becomes the next king. He's anointed as the next king of Israel. And there are some really cool sections in these first four chapters of 1 Kings Um, specifically in chapter 2, where David will kind of have a final word and a final charge to Solomon. And I'll just look at one verse to summarize what that says. Um, David says to Solomon, this is in 1 Kings 2, 2, Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do, and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me. That's a reference back to 2 Samuel 7 there. And so David wants Solomon to not only be a a successful king on the earth, but he wants him to walk with God. That's the priority that he is trying to put in place uh, for Solomon's life. And shortly thereafter, David will die. And we're told that after David dies, Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. David had conquered multiple nations and lands in his reign, and so he is able to hand the keys to his son Solomon in what would be a very desirable moment of this nation, um, where there really things can only boom and go up from here if they will simply just trust the Lord and look to him. Yeah. And so um, 1 Kings 3 picks up with a famous moment in Solomon's life where he prays for wisdom. And God comes to him in a dream in 2 King, or 1 Kings 3, 5 and says, Ask what I shall give you. And it's like, wow, if God gives you a blank check, what are you going to ask for? And Solomon wisely asks for wisdom. And God is so pleased with that that he tells him, I will not only give you wisdom, he says in uh, 1 Kings 3.11, And God said to him, Because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. 
And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your, as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. And so um, God fulfills this promise, and a lot of uh, the coming chapters are going to talk about the tremendous wisdom and the tremendous wealth that Solomon had. And again, we'll talk about this in a future episode, but it's kind of cool that Solomon is going to be the source of uh, a couple of other books of the poetry later on. Um, We're going to have at least three of the poetry books that are connected to Solomon in some way. You've got Proverbs, which are either by Solomon or uh, compiled by Solomon as he's looking for wisdom and putting that together. You've got the book of Ecclesiastes, which is traditionally ascribed to Solomon. It just talks about the preacher in that book, but it looks like that's probably Solomon. And then the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, um, is a book about romantic love and uh, is connected to Solomon as well. So um, we're going to start to see a lot of connections to David and Solomon in this part of the Bible. And Solomon um, is really a, kind of a, a conundrum of a character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is uh, he's so wise yeah. and he's got so much wealth. And he does so many good things. And he's going to kind of throw it all away. Yeah, He's not going to walk according to the wisdom that he has. You can have wisdom and then not actually live it out. And Solomon himself is going to be this mysterious figure that's like, man, you had everything. And then you blew it yeah. by turning to foreign women and multiplying wives like God told kings not to do back in Deuteronomy 17. So Solomon is, he's wise, but he's like the wisest fool. Yes. <laughs> he yes, ends I, up going the way of everybody else. That's a good way to put that. And so what, what we see out of Solomon, whereas his father David's reign, there was a lot of military accomplishments. And um, in fact, that was one of the main reasons that David wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. You kind of see the opposite out of Solomon. Uh, Solomon in chapter 5 even he's able to make an alliance with another king and you'll see that in a few other places as well and even when there is you know bloody work to be done it looks like Solomon actually kind of has other people take care of that it's not something he goes out and does and so well, and his name means peace right shalom. Solomon shalom yeah. Yeah, so it's like exactly. connected to the Hebrew word for peace and so beginning in chapter 5 after he's made this alliance he gets workers together and um, in chapter 6, he starts building this temple for God. And that's not out of the ordinary for us. If we remember from last week's episode in Second Samuel 7, David initially wanted to build the temple or a house for God. And Nathan told him, yep, go ahead and do it. And then God goes to Nathan and said, what are you doing? I never said that I wanted that. And he goes, relay it back to David that you're not going to build me a temple or a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he tells him about this descendant he's going to have that will be the one that builds the house for God. And that, of course, was talking about Solomon. And so David had made preparation for the temple to be built. Solomon picks up his king, and in chapter 6, he puts all the pieces together at this point. And chapter 6 kind of outlines what the temple looked like and really reminds us of certain parts of Exodus as it's talking about the tabernacle and how it was built and how it was constructed and put together. And so Solomon puts his hand to this work, And it is a beautiful result. 
so much so, spoiler alert, this temple will eventually be destroyed and another one will be built. And the people weep <laughs> whenever the second one is built because it doesn't measure up to the beauty of the one that Solomon constructs. Mm-hmm. And chapter 8 is about move-in day, uh, where God will move into this temple. Yes. And I, I love what Solomon prays on that occasion. Just a little excerpt from his prayer in First Kings 8 and verse 27 He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He he recognizes as awesome and beautiful as this house is, it is not even close to being worthy for Mm -hmm. the God of heaven and earth to dwell there. Not even the heavens can contain God. You know, it's not like, oh, well, God lives in this house and he doesn't live anywhere else. No. God is everywhere, and Solomon recognizes that. But unfortunately, what's going to end up happening with the temple is it's going to become a little bit like the Ark of the Covenant yeah. did in some of the early stories of Saul and you know, in First Samuel, First Samuel or, or even before Saul. Yeah. Um, and they kind of treat it like a good luck charm. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, well, as long as we've got the temple here, then God must be with us because we have this physical building whether or not we're doing anything that God wants us to do. We can live however we want. But as long as we have the temple, we got the... And Solomon acknowledges from the get-go, this is, does not represent God himself. He's so much bigger than the temple. And yet, when there's a physical representation of God, or at least his dwelling place, it's a temptation for the people to treat that almost like an idol. Mm-hmm. And we'll see that happen later on in the story. I do just want to mention one other thing in chapter 8 about move-in day. Um, as we read those verses, specifically verses 1 through 11, where they bring the ark in, uh, verse 10 says, It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of Yahweh the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so God's glory has now entered into the temple in the same way that it did the tabernacle back in, at the end of Exodus. And so God is now dwelling with his people. That's a really important concept that we see throughout the Old Testament. God's here with his people. That's right. Because that really, it's it's trying to get back to what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? It's right. like God was dwelling with mankind, Adam and Eve. And there's actually a lot of really interesting connections when you look at all the description about the temple and what it was. Um that there's a lot of connections to the Garden of Eden yes. and the plant imagery and the cherubim and different things. We won't go into detail uh, about that. Time would fail me to speak right. of all these things in detail. And, but um, it, it's really cool that that theme of God dwelling with mankind is a Bible-long theme. Mm-hmm. And you see little shadows of it here and there. And, of course, spoiler alert, the temple is not going to fully fulfill that. Um, but it is calling to mind, hey, we're still... There's kind of like that paradise lost theme. We right. want to get back to Eden. And these are attempts to do that um, that will fall short because of uh, mankind's sin. Well, and as is typical of God in these sections of Scripture, anytime there's kind of like a big national moment for his people, he has a few things he wants to say to them. And so in chapter 9, God spends nine verses there in our, in our Bibles warning Solomon and instructing him and reminding him of the promises that he had made to David. But it's going to be really vital for Solomon to heed these warnings that he needs to follow God and not turn his back. Um, Because just look back to Egypt. Look, Look at the other guys who turned their back and didn't make it into the promised land. So serve God, be faithful to him. But unfortunately, 
Solomon does not take that warning seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, in chapter 10, there's a, an account of Solomon continuing in wealth and wisdom. And so much so, this is where we're told that he has so much gold that he makes shields out of the gold. And of course, golds do not make good shields. It's very malleable uh, metal. But just to explain how much wealth he has, and in chapter 11, it tells us in verse 1 that King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and it lists many of the women there. And from these foreign nations, he takes wives for himself. And 700 wives and 300 concubines, yes. verse 3. Yeah, that's right. And then it says, and his wives turned away his heart. Yes. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. And then it talks about the terrible things that Solomon mm-hmm. ended up doing in the name of these other gods. Yes. And so Solomon throws it all away uh, for something earthly, for something temporary. And it is really that's the end of Solomon by the end of chapter 11. Um, he dies. Yeah, and it, and it never tells us, like... It, there's a chance that he repented. It doesn't record that specifically. Um, we know that he was old when he turned away from God. But man, I mean, we've had so many times in the Bible story so far that we think, all right, this is the one who's going to deliver us. Maybe it was going to be Noah. No, not Noah. Abraham, they did pretty good, but really kind of some failures there. Jacob, Joseph, like Saul, David. And like we keep thinking, this is the one, this is the one. And then crash and burn at the end. And that's true of how Solomon's story is told. Um, And we should learn from that, uh, that you can have all this wisdom, you can have all this wealth, but unless your heart is set to serve God, you can throw it all away Mm -hmm. by, uh, by being foolish. And that's what Solomon does. And just also the power of relationships, that you can have all the wisdom and smarts in the world, but if you connect yourself to people who don't love God, it's easy for them to corrupt right. you and to lead you away from God. And so Solomon's story is, again, kind of this enigma, this, this, this mystery of like great wealth and wisdom and yet such great folly yeah, tragedy. and foolishness. And um, unfortunately, the story doesn't get better from this point. No. After Solomon's failure, he's kind of a bright point, but... Um, it's going to be downhill from here. Yeah. So after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam reigns in his place. And Rehoboam is given the keys to a large nation at this point, a wealthy nation and a large nation that Rehoboam really hasn't worked for. You know, he, he's been the son the entire time. And so after he becomes king, there's a man named Jeroboam uh, that comes on behalf of all of Israel and says to Rehoboam, hey, can you lighten up on us? Your father made our yoke very heavy and very hard. And if you will just let up on it, let up on us, we will serve you. We, we will serve you faithfully. And Rehoboam will say, well, go, go on somewhere and uh, I'll make a decision. And Rehoboam invites in two groups of people. One were the counselors of his father, of the counselors of Solomon. They say, yeah, you should probably let up on the people. If you don't, you might have a revolt on your hands. Things aren't going to be good. The other group of people that Rehoboam talks to are his buddies, <laughs> the guys he, he spent time with growing up and talking to. And they said to Rehoboam, you know what? If you really just want to teach these people a lesson, you're going to make things harder for them. Show them who's boss. 
And what ends up happening is Rehoboam takes the advice of his friends and not the wise counselors of his father. And as a result, Jeroboam and the people revolt. And Jeroboam will specifically take all the northern tribes with him. And Solomon, or excuse me, Rehoboam will be left with, with Judah. And it's very sad to see the, the dividing of the kingdom here. We've seen hints of it at other places where there have been different civil wars. But from here on out, the kingdoms will be divided in the Old Testament. There will, they will no longer come back together. This is it for the mm-hmm. kingdoms. Yeah, and, and we'll see some things in the prophets about a future reuniting of the, of the kingdoms, Judah and Israel. So kind of from here on out in the story, when we say Israel, we're no longer referring to the whole nation. Uh, we're referring to the northern ten tribes that left Rehoboam and were under the reign of Jeroboam. Also, enter all of the confusing names here. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and they sound similar, but they're not the same. Um, but Jeroboam uh, takes the ten northern tribes, and he becomes kind of the poster child of idolatry. Mm-hmm. He builds golden calves, two of them, one in the north at Dan, one in the south at Bethel. And it, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? You've got uh, the golden calf that happened at Mount Sinai. That that went great, didn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so th- this is like so foolish right from the get-go. And it's just a downward spiral from there in the north. To kind of summarize what's going to happen here, in the northern kingdom of Israel, all the kings are going to be bad. There's not really going to be even one king who is like, and this guy was good. This guy was kind of like David. You know, it all talks about them, and they did evil like Jeroboam. You know, Jeroboam sets the standard, and they all just get worse. And Ahab is going to be highlighted as kind of one of the the worst kings. Now, there is going to be some repentance here and there, but overall, the northern kingdom goes from bad to worse, and it's just terrible. And there's all these different dynasties happening. Uh, you know, usually a king, you know, his son would reign and then his son would reign. But in the northern kingdom, every few generations or every one generation, in some cases, yeah. they're just killing each other off. There's yeah. always war. There's always violence and bloodshed. And it's just ugly. Yeah. In the south, in Judah, um, you've got David's family reigning. Again, God made these promises to David. Hey, the throne's never going to depart. Now, it's not the throne it used to be. It's only over a fraction of the people at this point. But for the sake of David, God is preserving this line of kings. And they're the ones who reign for the most part. There's one kind of rebellion of Athaliah um, in 2 Kings 11. But other than that, it's all kings of from David uh, who are, are reigning in the south. But as we read through these stories of the, the north and the south, it's just, again, gets confusing because we're kind of like, well, now we're talking about some northern kings and now we're talking about some southern kings. And this is where some visual aids are really helpful if you're studying, which obviously this is a podcast. We can't show you charts. But just imagine in your mind, uh, you know, kings in the north, kings in the south and kind of comparing those. But one of the things that's interesting as we talk just for a second about why the repeat of material in Second Chronicles, right? So First and Second Kings tell the story of Solomon and the divided kingdom. Second Chronicles also tells the story of Solomon and the divided kingdom. Well, they have different purposes. It seems like Samuel and Kings kind of go together, and they're just telling the raw story of Israel. And one of the main purposes of the books of Kings is to show why Israel went into captivity. 
and it highlights the failures of, listen, God told you to do this in the covenant back at Mount Sinai, and you didn't do it. (laughs) No other gods, no graven images, right? Ten Commandments. That's exactly what Jeroboam does, and all the kings of Israel walk in the ways of these idols. Hey, kings, don't multiply gold, don't multiply wives, all this stuff. That's what Solomon did, and you see what happens to Solomon. And so it's highlighting that God is actually being faithful to the covenant Mm -hmm. by punishing Israel and then Judah and sending them into captivity. The, The books of Chronicles are probably written a good bit later, after the return from captivity, and they're kind of looking back on Israel's history, but they're highlighting the hopefulness. They focus a lot on the promises to David, on a lot on uh, his preparations for the temple worship. And so when we get to Second Chronicles, it doesn't follow the story of Israel in the north. It follows David and his line in the south. And it would also explain why there's so much genealogy in those books as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's because it's really focused on, hey, like God's keeping his promises to Abraham. God's keeping his promises to David. And so like we mentioned last week, Bathsheba, that whole episode is not mentioned in Chronicles when it goes through the life of David in 1 Chronicles. And in uh, 2 Chronicles, it also excludes some of the bad stuff. Right. Um, not to try to revise history or pretend like that didn't happen. I mean, we've got First and Second Kings for that, right? But it's looking forward to a time when God is going to fulfill his promises to David and bring the son of David back. And it ends on a note of hope. And so if you're reading Kings and Chronicles and you're like, what is going on? Why all the repetition? I think it's helpful to read them separately and to see what's highlighted in each of those books. Yes. But in both books, you will learn that none of these kings were perfect. Mm -hmm. All of them had their flaws. And, of course, that anticipates all the more the king that you're going to get to in Matthew chapter 1. No, I'm not talking about Herod. Um, Of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect king that is able to come into the world and to save his people. And so uh, just remember that as you read through some of these stories, that that despite these kings being put there by God, they are not perfect. Only one is going to be perfect, and that's Jesus. That's exactly right. So coming back to the text of 1 Kings, we're kind of looking into chapter 16 now, chapter 15, where we have different kings that come about both in the south and in the north. And who's going to take kind of the center stage starting in chapter 17 um, is a guy named Elijah. And that's going to be a really important name for all of Bible students because Elijah is not only mentioned in the Old Testament, but he's brought up a lot in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament as well. And almost when he's used, he's kind of used to summarize all of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's kind of cool. You might remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Jesus and his apostles, his three there, but there was also Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the old law. Elijah kind of represents the prophets and what all they had to say. So Elijah's going to be an important figure to remember as you study the Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. And so this whole chunk, it's interesting, Elijah and then Elisha, again, another similar name, um, are focused on, they get the lion's share of the text in kind of the middle of this section here, starting in 1 Kings 17 and really going all the way into 2 Kings chapter 8. There's a focus on Elijah and Elisha, and primarily Ahab. 
Ahab gets a lot of airtime here because Elijah, the first one, has a lot of conflict with Ahab and with Ahab's even more wicked wife, Jezebel. And so there's some famous stories in here. First Kings 18 uh, talks about the story where there's a showdown between Elijah, like the one prophet of God, versus like 400 prophets of one of the idols, Baal, that Ahab was serving. And kind of a who's the real God uh, showdown in which the Lord sends fire from heaven, consumes the altar. And then Jezebel, after that, says, all right, Elijah, you're a dead man. So he runs out to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and God comforts him there. He thinks he's the only one left, but God says, you know, you're not the only one left. I still have 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so as we read through these stories, we just see that, like, sometimes it was really hard to find a righteous person in all of God's people, and Elijah feels like he's the only one left. But an encouraging thing through all these stories, as discouraging as they often are, is that God sees every person who's still serving him. Mm -hmm. He sees Elijah and 7,000 more who are not worshiping the idols, who are not bowing down to what everyone else is bowing down to. This is encouraging to me as we kind of summarize these stories is to know that God knows those who are his and sees the one who are doing right, even when it feels like the whole world has gone crazy, even God's own people have gone crazy. And is there anybody left? Yes, there is. And God sees and God knows. And so that really gets us through Second Kings, um, talking about Ahab, talking about Elijah, talking about all that he does. Um, Ahab will die. Uh, he is not going to live on, but the Lord will take his life for his wickedness. Um, and Ahab, in uh, chapter 22, verse 40, will sleep with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, becomes king in his place. And in the meantime, in verse 41, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asaph, becomes king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Yep. And, and again, if you want to go back and do the math on all this, you can. there's a lot of math to do with the years that they reign and in the fourth year of this king, and, this and, other king, and all that. And there's charts you can look up that can help you kind of organize your thoughts with that as well. Yes, very helpful. And so in 2 Kings, as we Elijah takes us through the end of 1 Kings, uh, in 2 Kings, in the first couple of chapters, we're going to have a transition from Elijah to Elisha and um, he's two different to, people though it's, right it's not a name change it is two different people that is right this is not a Jacob to Israel change yeah exactly a, or Paul, an actual hand or Paul to Saul is what I often think about yes. or Saul to Paul rather there you go so Elisha takes over for Elijah and he's actually even greater than he was and this is going to be kind of interesting in the New Testament because all of this foreshadows John the Baptist, who's going to be kind of in the place of Elijah, pointing to someone greater coming after him, Jesus. Right. Elisha will kind of foreshadow some of that. And the one really cool thing to see about Elijah is he didn't die. Like He was taken up into heaven and I don't even know how to describe exactly Chariot what it fire. was. Yeah. yeah, I guess that would be one way to describe it, but I would encourage people to get in, the, get in there and read it. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, where that happens, because it's really cool to read through what how the Lord does that. And as Elijah kind of is retired, he goes on his way, Elisha will take center stage, like Stephen had said. And this gives way, by the way, to the New Testament, where a lot of people will talk about John the Baptist coming in the, like, in the likeness of Elijah. He was even dressed like him. 
Um, in chapter 1 and verse 8 of Second Kings, you see the similarities between the way Elijah dressed and the way that John the Baptist dressed. And as Elijah kind of prepared the way for Elisha, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. So it's kind of a cool thing to see there. And the whole Old Testament actually ends with a statement about God sending Elijah. Um, And so the people were prepped for that uh, when John the Baptist comes on the scene. So we just mentioned this because these stories in the Old Testament, there's going to be some things from the very beginning of the story of Jesus that are hard to understand if you haven't read some of these stories or don't know the references to what's going on. But what we see happen here, starting in with Elisha, is a lot more miracles. I mean, there's some very similar miracles that both Elijah and Elisha do. But one of the interesting things in biblical history is kind of how miracles come in spurts. Um, there were a lot of miracles around the time of the Exodus because you had the plagues, you had the Red Sea, you had the manna and the water and like all this stuff going on. And then... There's like little things here and there, but Elijah and Elisha, man, this is like Miracle City going on at the end of 1 Kings, beginning of 2 Kings. They're raising people from the dead. They're healing diseases. They're doing all kinds of amazing things. There's a famous story in 2 Kings 5 about a man named Naaman who's a foreigner. That one's cool. And it's really cool to see how he is healed by essentially baptism. It doesn't use the word baptized there, but he's immersed in water to be healed of his leprosy and some cool parallels to New Testament things there. Definitely by the grace of the Lord, but still conditions for him to meet that. There's some cool big picture things to see in that story. That's right. And in 2 Kings 6, there's a moment where there's more horses and chariots of fire uh, that took Elijah to heaven. (laughs) Um, But that there's a servant whose eyes are open and he sees the mountain full. I mean, again, just so many cool things we could talk about that we don't have time to, to cover right now. But um, what we see is the Lord, through this section of the Old Testament, over and over again, reaching out to his people through the prophets. Again, we'll probably talk more about this in a future episode when we talk about the writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha. We don't have books written by them, but we know their stories. And over and over again, God is using them to try to get his people to repent, to try to get Ahab to repent try to get other kings to repent. And they're constantly confronting the kings of Israel and saying, why are you doing this? Like, don't turn to the Lord and and he'll bless you, but give up your idols, give up your sin. And and that's really the role of the prophets in this whole section is they're, they are telling the future sometimes, Mm -hmm. but in a large part, they're trying to get repentance out of God's people. That's kind of their primary function. Yeah, that's exactly right. <clears throat> so picking up in Second Kings, I don't know where we should even go from here. Maybe chapter 9 is where we want to pick up. Um, we see that Israel is just in a downward spiral. They don't have a good king in sight. All the kings that are, that are going to pop up over the next several eight or nine chapters are just going to be evil. Um, they're all going to be assassinating one another. At one point, if I'm not mistaken, Stephen, doesn't like a guy's mom kind of like take over in in Judah? Yeah, that's Um, in 2 Kings 11. Yeah, and it just really gets into how gross these nations have turned. And you will see glimmers of hope for some of the southern kings, but overwhelmingly for the north, they are just a downward spiral, and they will eventually get sent into captivity. That's exactly right. And, and this was, again, prophesied about. If you go back and read the blessings and curses back in like Leviticus and especially in Deuteronomy toward the end of those books, um, that this was what God said would happen. I'm going to give you the land. Joshua, you know, you're going to go into the land. But then if you forsake me, and you will, 
I'm going to send you back to the nations. I'm going to I'm going to kick you out of the land just like I kicked the nations out who were there before you. You've become worse than they were. And so you're subject to the same judgment. Just like Joshua drove out the Canaanites, now I'm going to bring in these other nations to drive you out, take you into captivity. I think 2 Kings 17 is a really important summary statement because um, it just shows God's patience in all this. Second uh, Kings 17, look at verse 7. And, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And you can keep reading the summary statement here, but um, it, it's, a, it's a sobering thing to see. God keeps his promises both to bless and to curse. And he told them this is what was going to happen. And so God sends the northern kingdom away. He uses the kingdom of Assyria to take them captive. And so we're just left with Judah in the south. And if you are tempted to think, oh, good for Judah. Well done, guys. You guys are the ones left. Uh, Pick up at verse 19. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Judah's not innocent. They are just as guilty. And And that's going to be a message of the prophets. Um, You look at the book of Isaiah, and it opens up by talking about how rotten the nations have gotten at this point. Mm -hmm. And when Israel the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. Judah almost falls at the same time. And then the next stories, uh, specifically 2 Kings 18 through 20, tell us about Hezekiah. And it's only really because of Hezekiah's repentance with the help of Isaiah, the prophet, that Judah lasts another hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just so heartbreaking to see the downward spiral through all all of this section. Yeah, and so uh, I would encourage a read-through of those last seven or eight chapters of Second Kings because there's some really good stories in there about uh, several different kings, some good kings as well. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah um, all have ups and downs in their own life, and I would encourage you, know, you to read those on your own time. But one of the things to look out for in those later chapters is as Israel, or Judah, excuse me, f- continues to fall away from the Lord and to not do good, and they keep trusting in foreign nations, and different foreign nations are almost using the kings as puppets, and it just kind of gets nasty. God is still able to preserve the line of David as they get thrown into captivity eventually, Babylonian captivity. And God is able to preserve that line for Jesus eventually to come through. And so as you're reading through these stories, not only see them for, for 
the history that they are, but also read Jesus into these stories. See that God still has his hand in the lives of men as bad things are happening. That's right. And actually, the book of 2 Kings is going to end with, again, a summary statement of the captivity that happens to Judah, just like it did to Israel. It talks about Nebuchadnezzar coming yeah, in. Yeah, that's a big, big picture. Destroying Jerusalem, uh, taking the people captive, burning the temple. And again, this is what they put their trust in. Oh, this is the temple. We can't be defeated while we have the temple. And God's like, it doesn't matter if you have a physical building if you don't have me. And their sins had caused God to leave the temple. And you can read about this in Ezekiel and other places. But it's heartbreaking. But what's interesting is even the book of 2 Kings will end with a little note of hope about Jehoiachin, who was taken into Babylonian captivity. But he's given a seat at the king's table. He's not a king, but he's in the line of David. And he is being taken care of in this foreign nation. And again, we just see these little hints of like, okay, it looks like the whole Israel project has failed. God chose Abraham, made him a nation, but now Israel is gone. Like, they're no longer a nation. The northern tribes are gone. The southern tribes are in captivity. But one of the things we're going to see, especially through the prophets, is that God has kept a remnant. There are a few people who are still righteous and still holding out. We're going to see Daniel and some of the his you know, stories, his friends, but that God knows who his people are and he's going to fulfill his promises to David about one of David's sons, the son of David, is going to return. And so this sets the stage. I mean, this first and second Kings is largely a very depressing downward spiral of what's happening in Israel's history. But you see these glimmers of hope that ultimately are going to be fulfilled in Jesus. If you're looking for maybe a date to kind of get you in the right ballpark as we look at the end of Second Kings, we're looking at around 600 B.C. that a lot of these events have taken place here toward the latter part of Second Kings. So just to emphasize that these are real historical things that happened and took place. There are not arbitrary timelines addressed to this, but we can look at the Bible and archaeology and other places to nail these things down and know when these things happen. So that's just an encouraging thing I wanted to mention there at the end of the podcast today. So... We're left at the end of First and Second Kings with a very dismal situation for Israel. They're no longer a kingdom. They no longer have a king. They are captives in a foreign land. And so we're left with this question. What's going to happen? Who's going to save them? And how is God going to keep his promises to David if like, they're no longer in the land? They're no longer have a king. It seems like all of these promises are getting reversed and taken away. And this is where we look to the prophets mm-hmm. and think about, okay, what else is going on here? What is God doing in the big picture? Because there are moments where when we look around at the world, it sure looks like God has failed. Yes. But we can know from stories like this that even when it seems so hopeless, God is never going to go back on his promises and he finds a way. Yeah, It's all part and, of the plan. And God will give adequate warning to these people as well. He, he doesn't just leave them behind in the dust, but he gives them warning. He gives them preaching and teaching. And so, Lord willing, next week we are going to get into some of these prophets and talk about their messages of hope and restoration, but also their warnings uh, that went to the people during these hard times in their lives. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. 
if you'd like to study the Bible with us, uh, there's obviously a lot we didn't cover today, <laughs> uh, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on those kinds of uh, studies or others, check out capitalcitychristians.com. <laughs>